Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Manchester City beat Arsenal in the Premier League to leapfrog them at the top of the table. Has the momentum shifted from North London to Eastlands. We'll be talking about that huge match and some big games in the Champions League as well, but defeats for both Premier League sides as Spurs and Chelsea are beaten by a goal to nil on their travels. We'll discuss Paris Saint-Germain after their defeat to Bayern Munich and look ahead to some important games at the bottom of the Premier League this weekend. A huge clash between Everton and Leeds and what next for Southampton in their new manager search as they go to Chelsea. This is the game. Hello, welcome to the game podcast. I am Hugh Wozencroft. And of course, we begin with a huge game in the Premier League title race. It ended Arsenal 1, Manchester City 3. Manchester City returning to the top of the Premier League for the first time since November, leapfrogging the leaders Arsenal or the then leaders Arsenal with a vital victory at the Emirates. City on top on goal difference, but they have played a game more. And we begin this discussion with Tom Clark, who's here to discuss that match with us. Tom Roddy will join us shortly from Dortmund to discuss the Champions League alongside Gregor Robertson and Ian Hawkey as well. So plenty for us to discuss and in great company as well. But let's start with this game at the Emirates, as I say. Tom Clark, a game that in many ways was decided by errors. What did you make of it? Yeah, you're right. It was decided by errors. I would say the first error from Tommy Yasu is a very much a self-inflicted one. I would say the other ones in the second half were more brought on by City's improved pressing. Um, I thought there was a marked difference in the way City played, not just tactically, but in terms of their intensity uh, and where it was targeted first half v second half. I think first half, Arsenal controlled the game, really. Um, they were getting through that City press pretty easily. Their passing was really, really top-notch. I thought I, they put some together some incredible flowing moves. But as Martin Samuel's written in the Times this morning, this is why Pep Guardiola is Pep Guardiola. He makes changes. He makes some kind of slightly bizarre tactical tweaks at times but th this is why he's a top class manager because he's he works out uh how how to get the best out of his team in these scenarios because he as Jack Grealish said I think Arsenal were the better team for large parts of the game but at the same time it's one of these strange games where you could say okay well City deserved to win overall at the end of 90 minutes if things like Bernardo Silva's role in the whole game was fascinating and um if listeners check the times after listening to this podcast we've got a piece kind of detailing how his movements around the pitch from left back to defensive midfielder to right winger kind of showed how Guardiola manipulated the game and also how I don't think you need to play that well or that effectively but still triumph I think Bernardo Silva was perhaps a kind of symbolic player for City's performance in that he, he ran around a lot uh, he, he played it at a high intensity he kicked Bukayo Saka and ended up on the winning team with a few kind of uh, key moments in the second half so it, it was it was fascinating I I'm interested to see what you all think about what this means for Arsenal because I think there's a lot of discussion in the Times offices last night when I was working on this morning that kind of this is the wheels coming off 
and I mean, listeners will know that I'm team Mikel Arteta all the way, um, so perhaps slightly biased, but it, it just doesn't feel like that to me. I think they played well. I think the, you know, I know we're going to come on to the games that they've got to come, but I, I, I just don't see this as the kind of wheels falling off. It felt like they were kind of beaten by a more experienced, a more savvy team, and you know, I think that's how City played it. So I, I would, I would, I don't think this is the wheels coming off for Arsenal. I think that this was a very tight game. Um, that Arsenal played very well in the first half. City kind of used that kind of experience and that champions, champions quality, as Henry Winter said this morning. But I, I still think this is going to be a very tight title race. Um, just to answer that question quickly, in terms of you know what it means in the greater aspect, you know, managers over the years have said you'd rather be chasing, you know, not just in the Premier League, leagues all over the world, because I do think. You know, it takes away the element of having to really look over your shoulder, having to worry, I think takes a little bit of the edge of the the pressure off in that you're no longer the team to beat in many ways and you now have a goal of chasing down someone else. So I know it's level on points at the moment and Arsenal have the game in hand. So if they win that, they will be top and they'll be back in that position. But um, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, so many people were saying last night, well, the reason Manchester City won is they've got the experience. They've won four out of the last five titles. And you kind of think, well, okay, then if Arsenal don't have the experience of leading from the front and taking it, you know, all all the way to the final match to lift the the trophy, then maybe it's better for them to almost, you know, not have to think about it going into games. You know, you just go out there, you do your stuff, you win the result and see where it takes you, as Mm -hmm. opposed to what we've had for so long, which is, are Arsenal good enough? Can they win the title? All the question marks on really when they're going to slip up, well... I guess all of that is out the window now. So I, I don't know, may, maybe it helps and maybe I'm clutching at straws. Well, we discussed it on Monday's show, didn't we, in terms of previewing this and said whether, you know, this this narrative of the season has been that Arsenal are out in front and the only way they'll win it is by staying out in front. And I actually think for us as well in the media, this is, this is a great twist and turn moment, isn't it? That we're going to see now what Arsenal are made of because, as you say, they're, they're very briefly and albeit only on goal difference, the chasers. And I think that might help them in terms of a young manager with a young squad who aren't experienced in winning winning titles. It might help them. Arteta said it himself. He said, psychologically, there's a marathon still to go. So he recognises that there's going to be ups and downs between now and the end of the season. And I don't think they should be too disheartened by this. As, as Tom outlined there, they were, they were the better side. They're certainly, you know, the team that dominate the play more. And there were some strange things in this game in terms of, you know, I think City's possession was the lowest. It's been under Pep Guardiola, I think it was uh, 36% possession. They played quite direct for periods in the first half up to up to Haaland to kind of try and negate or play around or play over Arsenal's press. And then City just, again, to echo Tom, it was like we saw a team who were going for their fourth title in five years against a team that's not going for their first in just about two decades. I think you just saw them grow more, City, in the second half. But in terms of like expected goals, it was 1.8 to City, 1.6 to Arsenal, 10 shots Arsenal, 9 shots City. Like, there, was not, there wasn't much in it. Although Arteta was pointing to the mistakes as well that led to goals, they, and the chances they missed, City missed chances as well. It was, it was about just those, you know, who delivered in the key moments. And, I, you know, there are a couple of things too. I think Arsenal's... Arsenal fans deserve credit, which sounds may sound strange because of, they've taken some seriously deserved stick over the years. But even after Tommy Asso made that mistake, they were chanting his name and roaring the morning. Even when they went behind, it felt like 
this is a kind of club that's been healed and united by this team and they've really they're doing everything although it was subdued at the end they were you know kind of a realization that they have still got a huge mountain to climb if they want to win this league and that mountain is to climb over is Manchester City they were still right there with the team to the end for me the only thing is there's just been slight kind of cracks in Arsenal's defensive pairing whether it's Saliba in the air or uh, Gabriel in kind of clutch moments you know he gave away the ball I think for the second goal kind of grass that kind of tussle he got in with Haaland Haaland's a, a specimen but I just think there's been in the last few weeks a, a few cracks showing there and they've been outstanding and they've, they've had to be outstanding because that's been a weak point for Arsenal for a long time but overall like they went toe to toe with them and for periods they were better than City so there's a long long way to go yet uh, Tom, there were a few moments during this game that fans were arguing about. I guess like every single game, there was a highly debatable penalty given to Arsenal for Edison's foul on Ketty. I wonder what you made of that. I heard a lot of Arsenal fans reflecting on the fact that they felt Saka is constantly fouled in this game and many, many others. I-, I wonder how much those things are worth debating now that we've seen the outcome. It felt like a kind of um, natural, easy progression of decision making, I think, uh both in the office and we spoke to Peter Walton, uh, who's our referee pundit as well last night. And he initially, when we were talking to him, was saying, oh, I'm not sure about this. But I think like a lot of people, gradually felt that the penalty was one of those that perhaps wasn't always given, but that maybe was a foul. I'm sure Gregor might have some views on that as a as a defender. But it, so uh, that one didn't bother me too much in terms of the big big topic of debate. Your, your point on Saka is an interesting one. You know, it, it's not the first time we've seen it. It's interesting to see that City did it. Bernardo Silva was right into him at all times, both completely fairly and at times unfairly. But that, but that's part of being a top team. And I would say that that, not that point in isolation, the point about Saka, but I think it links to a trend that perhaps is the only thing that you could say as a theme from these recent games for Arsenal, Everton, Brentford, and now Manchester City. All different teams, different ways of playing, but they've all kind of stopped them in a fairly... I, I, I'm hesitant to use this because it feels a little bit basic, but an aggressive way. They've really, really gone gone at them and said, you've really got to battle past us if you want to play your wonderful flowing football. And I think that's the test for Arteta now. And in turn, it's meant that Arsenal have slightly lost their way at times. I think against Everton, they couldn't break them down. Against Brentford, you know, it was a battle back and forth all the way to the end. And against City, I think what what happened in that second half, you know, Gregor alluded to it there as well, they kind of got distracted by the battle rather than making the way they played part of winning the battle, if that makes sense. They got distracted by the battle. There was the VAR decision, which kind of, even though it went their way, um, with the penalty, the Haaland penalty, it didn't seem to help. It seemed to kind of distract them from from their game, and it just felt like even at two one, it felt like Arsenal weren't going to get a chance. It felt like they'd lost that momentum of their wonderful flowing football that they played in the first half. So I would say that to, to the to the Saka point, that's perhaps the only interesting thing that we can take as a theme going forward. That yes, he is their best player, and yes, teams are going to try and stop them by kicking him. But broader than that that is how the opposition are maybe going to look at Arsenal. It's far more sophisticated than they don't like it up them. But basically, I think there's an element of distract Arsenal with a battle and you, they might stop playing their wonderful football. I think Silva could quite easily have been booked before he was. 
in the first half. Um, yeah, I think if he'd have been a left-back playing for Burnley or Stoke or someone and not called Bernardo Silva, I think he could have got two yellows as well, yeah. Maybe, yeah. Also, like, just not to linger too long on that point, it's hard to overstate how unconventional what he's been asked to do is. Like, Martin Samuel, I've had reference to this in his sort of intro in his piece today, and I, I was fascinated watching that moment on the sidelines in the first half where I think uh, Kyle Walker had been poleaxed, basically, in his line on the floor. And Guardiola took that as a moment to to bring over uh, Silva, was it Rodri, and someone else, and and they were and he was kind of oh Anaki because it's the kind of the, the little little trio, that little triangle between the left side, side of the centre half, Silva if you can call him the left back, and Rodri in midfield, and how they interact and how they move to close down either the midfielders inside or Saka, and he was you know he was waving his arms around so passionately and somebody got it wrong at one morning he said no 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 and and then you saw they analysed it really well in the studio as well that there were moments where Silva was from left back charging inside in field to close down maybe Odegaard or you know somebody the midfielder advancing midfielder and as a, as a left back a former left back it's hard to say to overstate how wrong that would feel like Exposing yourself, you know, going out to, to and leaving a gap for the for the winger to exploit. But they they just know they know they have a kind of clear they've worked on it. They have relationships that Aki would then be the one to close down Saka. Or, and that's why I said after being at the Etihad on the Sunday that there were times I said this on Monday there were times where it looked like Silva was playing as an auxiliary centre half because he, he he does. It's almost not important whether he's filling in at left back or he's filling in at centre half as long as some the nearest man's closing the ball down and. They're covering each other in terms covering each other's space. It was it's extraordinary. I know that the kind of modern fullback is becoming a lot of different things, but this has almost taken it to another length, another level. And part of that is because the man doing it is an out and out midfielder. You could say Zinchenko does the same for Arsenal, but it's not quite the same. Um, I thought that was an absolutely fascinating aspect of the match. And quickly on the penalty, my instinct at the time was, if the if the forward gets off a shot and the goalkeeper or defender's action after that is not reckless, not really endangering the opponent. I don't like to see it given, but I can have. You can't. You can also, from Arsenal's point of view, say that it was a foul, and so you can't be too upset to, to see it given. Gregor, how much did Arsenal miss some of their key players in this game? Because you almost get the indication that the the depth of City squad and the quality there in some ways, is the difference. I know Martin Samuel's written about Guardiola being the difference, but Thomas Partey, Ben White, um, Gabriel Jesus, I think for a lot of Arsenal fans, his absence was um, maybe exposed a little bit by, you know, in the Nketiah misses, but maybe just a more general lack of involvement as well. I don't know what you you make of that. Yeah, I mean, Nketiah, again, we're talking about these games being won in clutch moments. Nketiah's header in the first half, that was a glorious chance. Another that was flashed across the box and he didn't quite get in the end of. But you have to see he almost scored a goal when to win, to win the penalty. He had another in the box where he couldn't quite get the ball out of his feet, get the shot off. I don't know. You just don't really see. I suppose you could say the same of of Haaland, but you don't see him that much in general build-up play. And I didn't think it was his best night. And Party, I've kind of banged the drum all season, saying he's one player that they can that they really can't replace. And Jorginho is someone. To, they brought in in January to to give them another option there after El Nenny's injury, but undoubtedly they were weakened. And Tommy Asu, 
And from a defensive point of view, he's really solid. There was a, I also don't think he got the credit in the first half for Haaland's kind of back post shot. I think he got a little, little flick on that and it wasn't really noted. He got a slight touch that put Haaland off and meant he kind of dragged his shot across goal instead of probably on target. He's a really good defender and Arteta said he's never seen him make a mistake like that in seven years of having watched him and that was a bad time to do so. So, yeah, you look at Arsenal's uh, fill-ins, if that's the right word, <laughs> for, you know, the players that are coming in. and they're not, The replacements. They're yeah, replacements. the replacements. Replacements, <laughs> a better word, yes. They're not, they're not uh, of the same level. That's a fact. And we've known that for a long time. Arsenal have to be lucky with injuries this season. And they have been, generally speaking. I think probably just those little, those that that kind of step down in in quality showed. Do we all kind of agree that momentum shifted? In fact, does anyone think momentum shifted in the in this game? I guess I've pointed out already. I think there's a long way to go, and I don't necessarily feel like Arsenal are in a worse position mentally. I know a lot of people were using this game as a kind of massive psychological barometer of what's to come. I'm not too sure about that, um, Tom. Yes, well, I mean, I've uh, managed to um, stay Team Arsenal and Team Mikel through this uh, little run they're having, but I, I will buy into the idea that maybe they're in a bit of a bad way if they don't get a result against Aston Villa. It's tough for them as well because it's it's away from home. It's the early game. Maybe that would maybe Gregor would say as a player when you're on a bad run, you just want to get out there because I think the other thing is to me, other than Everton, I think they're still playing quite well, and um, particularly last night. So actually, away at Aston Villa becomes a huge, huge game, and I would say as significant as playing against City. If they if they win that, everything's back on back on track, and that kind of momentum that you're talking about perhaps hasn't uh, seesawed too much towards Manchester City. But it's it's absolutely vital that Arsenal put in a performance and and probably get a win um, against Villa on Saturday, because then otherwise even even people like me might start saying that uh, the wobble is really here. Huge game against Villa at the weekend, Ian. They need a bit of a favour, don't they? From their old mate, Unai Emery. Uh, Villa haven't been great, particularly in their last game, but um, he has brought a huge air of positivity in terms of the way that they've played and some of the results that they've picked up. They'll want to bounce back. They will want to put a spanner in the works as well, I'm sure. Emery himself would love to get one over on his old side. Uh, 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 he he certainly would. He's uh, you know he's quite a, he's quite a generous soul, Unai, and he's he's um he's he's quite close to Arteta. But um yeah, there's uh you know there's there's some unfinished business between him and Arsenal for sure. Just just on the uh, the points Tom and and Gregor were making, um the idea that Arsenal might be bullyable, you know, looking at their last three games and and how they were taking it on then. I mean, clearly the the players who who will be coming back um, at some point are are an obvious solution to that. And they partake Gabriel Jesus, the way he's, you know, he's he's been physically so imposing since he 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 moved to Arsenal. But certainly, the Emery will have will have looked at how people have taken Arsenal on in the last uh, three or four games, and I wouldn't be surprised to see some more of the same. Party is the is the key figure in that that respect, and as being said, Jesus as well. You know, I kept kept describing him as a as like a street fighter on the pitch, uh, in the in the in his start to Arsenal's career. And I know we always saw that at City, but it's it's that kind of that little dash of menace that he carries as well. And you know, throwing his weight into uh, into challenges and 
so good at holding the ball up and spinning and bringing people into play. But it's, you know, how aggressive he is as well. Undoubtedly, the return of Jesus will be a huge boost. And I think, I think the Arsenal, they really do have to win against Villa because at the moment we can see that we knew that this kind of little clutch of games was could be season defining and it's not going well for them. But they're still in a, from you know, a brilliant position. Um, if they don't get a result in the next game, that would be five games I think without winning all competitions, and then you are talking about a real wobble and a big test of character. This is already a test, but it can be kind of put to bed and throw the focus towards the future again with a win against Aston Villa. Okay, one of the games that I guess we'll be looking at uh, on Monday. A disappointment for Arsenal in midweek, but um, Manchester City with a huge victory. And of course, they will play at the Etihad and that will be maybe key, the key game now in terms of the title race. Okay, plenty more still to discuss when we get back. Uh, we'll be talking about the Champions League with Spurs and Chelsea in action. A big game between PSG and Bayern Munich to react to as well. That's next on The Game Podcast. Well, I would say the problems mount for the Chelsea boss, Graham Potter, except I'm not really sure what level of pressure he's currently under. It's now two wins in 14 in all competitions for Chelsea. That's after Karim Adeyemi scored a lovely solo goal to condemn them to a 1-0 defeat in the Champions League last 16 first leg at Borussia Dortmund. A raft of missed chances, I think, for Chelsea to rue in this one. Uh, Jao Felix shooting over... Uh, hits the crossbar as well in the first half. Ian, it's seven straight wins in all competitions for Dortmund, and yet for for many, it's quite a surprising result. What did you make of it? Uh, well, it, it, it was a it was a it was a great watch. I thought um, really entertaining game. Chelsea, you have to adopt different criteria now, don't you? Because you know every sign of progress is to be welcomed, and you know it is it is a it is a thing that has been thrown together. Um, on the hoof, at least for you know, at least for immediate purposes, and um, you know, so 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 you judge them according to different standards. But um, it, there were so many, seemed to me, so many signs and moments of 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 players who who aren't haven't come to terms with one another yet, and and a manager who is still working out how to best use them. There was um, around about the hour just before the goal, actually, Enzo Fernandez, I, I think. Because Mudrick was getting in his way, he he fired a rather tame shot just wide, and it was a real sort of oh, moment. And then, very very soon afterwards, there he was, last line of defence against a very 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 fast counter-attacking forward. And you know he he came out of that looking totally vulnerable and inevitably because he's he's new and he's very expensive, um, a little bit lost and bewildered. Um, and and that that you know that summed up for me. Um, an aspect of of Chelsea, who nevertheless had I think twenty one shots was it? Um, you know you can you you can see what what they could become and could become in a reasonable space of time, but uh, but you know it, it it's still got to be worked out. What did you think of Chelsea's performance, Tom? You were there in Dortmund afterwards. Uh, Graham Potter said a phrase that he's used quite a few times since becoming Chelsea manager. And um, which I think has started to grate on quite a few Chelsea fans, and that's that it was a step forward. Um, the performance, and of course, in in defeat, I think that irritates quite a few people. But actually, I I, I do think it was. I was at the West Ham game 
on Saturday. And that was probably the, the first time we really saw the potential of this new Chelsea. <laughs> the, the 25 minutes in which Ludric, Felix, Enzo, Fernandez all really started to click and, and they showed real huge potential. Then, yeah, that West Ham score and Chelsea just wilted. They showed they, they showed such a lack of character. And that's at the London Stadium where there is no, there is such little atmosphere because of the stadium and the environment that allows. And then last night at probably the one of the most hostile environments you could have, a superb atmosphere at Signal Medina Park. They go behind and actually, I thought they, they got even better after the goal, to be honest. They they showed character, which is the thing that I actually think they have missed since Graham Potter came in. And not because of him, but because of the fact there's so many. It is a, it is almost like a brand new club. Every, every department has changed, had, had huge overhaul. So it's like pulling together a brand new club overnight, mid-season, and you get managers talk about the difficulty of, of coming into a club mid-season. But this, this has been a complete overhaul. So actually, they're not out of the game, although out of the tie, far, far from it. And there are signs to suggest that they, they can... They can still progress, but the, the 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 one kind of curious thing I found from last night, after all this money that's been spent, uh, the the approach they seemed to have quite often was with wing backs, and Hakim Ziyech was a right wing cutting in on that lovely left foot he's got and crossing into the box. But who's he crossing to? It was it was Kai Havertz, who, with the best will in the world, was very rarely been much of a, a physical threat in the box likely to get onto onto crosses and it, it it just didn't didn't work out that approach it's crucial that Chelsea get Reese James and Ben Chilwell playing somewhere close to their best soon as well I mean James obviously coming back from a well they're both coming back from injuries James made one surging run in the second half that was magnificent and he was halted kind of just on the edge of the box those two players were so, so crucial for, for Chelsea under Thomas Tuchel. So I think, you know, get, at least they're both fit now, getting them, but getting them up to speed quickly is important. And, uh, but Thomas right, look, that's their third goalless game in the last four. You still can't believe that Chelsea have scored 23 goals in 22 Premier League games. Like, that's less than half of Arsenal. He has to find a way to, to, to remedy that. And I know that sounds like a, you know, that sounds, not, it's not straightforward, and it is remarkable that they spend so much money and none of it's been on a, a genuine centre forward. And people can point to Aubameyang. I don't. I think we're we're beyond that. You know, Aubameyang sitting at home. We're beyond that. I think he's his face doesn't fit, and it's always easy to find a solution in in the player that's sitting, you know, sitting at home or sitting on the bench or is injured. But he's done very little to suggest that he is that solution while he's been at Chelsea as well. So. It would come back to that point. They have to. They ha- Potter has to find a way to make Chelsea score the goals they need to win games because he needs to start winning games very soon. And Havertz doesn't look like he's 
as Tom said, he's going to be the guy to do that. Felix looks like he will score goals. You know, he came so close two occasions last night in particular. And I think their expected goals was 2.2. But it's becoming a recurring theme. Uh, they need to do something to, to turn these chances into goals. Yeah, they've... they've um... The statistic about the goals they've scored is is even more damning if you just look in the in the recent period. They scored four goals in thirteen games, but the, the statistics do. This is why expected goals it can be quite um, instructive with uh, with issues like this, where they scored th- three against West Ham but uh, had two disallowed. They had one that was inches away from going in last night, cleared off the line. Felix hits the hits the crossbar and shoots over. They they are. They, it feels like they're they're so close to getting there. Like it is so close to tricking. And I just wanted to go back to the point I made earlier about character. Actually, I, I Gregor mentioned the return of Reese James, and I think he brings he. He brings and Enzo Fernandez bring a real sort of grit and fighting spirit to this Chelsea team that I think they lack when those two players aren't there. Immediately, as soon as Enzo came into this team, he's looked like a, a warrior. And there have been a few Chelsea players that they've signed, and even just away from the pitch, the 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 focus from the focus on them has has made a few. It's been a bit overwhelming for a few players, but then Enzo, when he came in, Mudrik, when he came in, immediately both of them were seen as as totally capable of dealing with her. And they've done, they 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 have had a really good start considering the expectation and the focus on them. You mentioned Mudrik and, and Enzo there, and and you know that's the impression I get. What about Joao Felix? I mean, he it's easy to to say because of his his peculiar situation in that you know he is not a a permanent signing he's got a massive price tag on him he's in an awkward situation in that sense he sometimes looks to me as if he is he is auditioning you know that that there's 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 a bit of anxiety in his game and you can easily say that when you know the chances chances that should go in are missed but i i, I there seems to be yeah a, a a haste about him in in key positions i mean i think he's been you know he's been in the way he's been the most impactful in terms of of you know his creativity his his absolute enthusiasm for showing for the ball all the time but how do you interpret his situation at the moment and and beyond the summer well there's there's actually a bit of an irony i find in that they all this money they've spent in the last uh, the last year and probably the best player they've got they don't actually own uh, because he he's been especially in that hour that he had at Fulham in uh, Craven Cottage. He was just electric, and you almost you you know more than me, Ian. But at the, he he looked liberated of playing under Simeone, and the the, the Grand Potter is probably the antithesis of <laughs> Simeone in in many ways, and he's just had a bit of a license to to play freely the, the, the one thing I thought at Fulham and even not more uh, it was more at Fulham than, than recently but he looks like he's missing a, a, a striker to play off he, he looks like a 
superb number 10 um, who can dart in and around a, 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 a centre-forward, essentially. And, and I do wonder, maybe they won't, it, it, it felt very final uh, last summer, but I do wonder whether there would be any temptation to look at Romelu Lukaku this summer, bringing him back, giving him a try, because this isn't the Chelsea that where it collapsed and was such a failure for him. Uh, he's he's a real confidence player, and there's a bit as you mentioned. There's a lot of Gregor mentioned. There's a lot of talk of Abamyang, and and I agree. I, I don't think it. I think that ship has sailed. I, I don't think he is the solution. When when he was in the team, he wasn't looking like the solution. But Lukaku at his best, and and playing under a manager like Graham Potter, who is not so harsh um, on him, I think it would be worth exploring. And, and how do you think the fans would react to that? Because Lukaku did get a bit grumpy, didn't he, towards um, towards the the middle of the last season and, and speaking very fondly of wanting to go back to Italy and so on. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's, um, maybe it is a step backwards, but it just seems like a considering the expense of getting him off the books and the, the one player that watching last night, the way Ziyech was crossing the ball in, I thought it, it felt like that summer again where they were missing the, the, the missing piece of the puzzle, Romelu Lukaku, um, and it wasn't, but it, whether it could be this time, but, but maybe it is the wrong thing to do to stay, take a step back. But I don't think, and also I don't think this club is, at the moment is a, is afraid of making decisions that will set fans. To be honest, Tom, very quickly, I know you're out in, in Dortmund. I do want to reflect on an interview that you've done in the Times with the former West Ham and Ajax striker Sebastian Allaire, who returned this year after uh, chemotherapy treatment for cancer. What was that experience like? Very moving. To, to, to begin with, first of all, it, it was one of those real privilege moments to sit and talk with uh, Sebastian Allaire about what he'd been through in the last seven months. And really quite inspirational, to be honest, because he, he clearly had this real bright, uh, optimistic outlook that everything was going to be okay. And really impressive as well in the way that there was never a moment where the, the way he speaks, there was never a moment where he expected things to not go his way. But the, the impact on his family spoke about the preparing his mum, Simone, she was back in Paris and when he f first found out about it after, and it's worth pointing this out because it is a recurring theme in these stories that, it was a late diagnosis. He, he he felt it began in May when he felt stomach issues, but he kept putting off checking it. And and finally, when he did during the preseason tour in Switzerland, discovered that there was a tumor pressing on his abdominals. It was it was testicular cancer, and just the way he approached it was was so strong-minded and 
there was one quote that really, really stood out to me from the, the time I spent with him, which was, which was where he said that this is part of my story. It is a chapter in the story, but he said that he wouldn't let it define him and you have to turn the page as well. So even though it is part of his story, he wants to, he wants to move on now. It, it was a real privilege to listen to him. And of course, you know, not that you'd ever, not that anyone uh, deserves to go through the, anything like this at all. But I, I spoke to a few people, as, as you tend to do before interviews, I spoke to a few people beforehand. He was built into this image of a just a brilliant character. There was one person I spoke to uh, uh, who works in football and they went to go and they were, they were attempting to sign him. Uh, when he was 21 years old, went and met him, uh, pitched their club to him, in 15 minute slot to meet him, about one o'clock in the afternoon, finished the pitch and they were just about to leave and Calais said, what time is your flight? It's seven o'clock and what are you doing until then? I said, oh, nothing. And he said, well, me and my family play Uno, so... If you just stick around and play Uno with us, spent spent the afternoon playing Uno with Sebastian and his and his family, and just little little stories, little anecdotes like that, and colouring the image of of what someone's like. And he he was a real pleasure to speak to, real warm, engaging company, and it was so it was it was a subplot last night. It's incredible to see him back playing, and it didn't really work out for him at West Ham. But he, he is a very good striker, and it's just great to see him back and, and very quickly get into full fitness again. I completely agree, Tom. And it's an interview that you can read on the Times app right now. So do check it out. Tom Roddy in conversation with Sebastian Allaire. Uh, but after that defeat, I think Chelsea will remain confident that with that home leg to come at Stamford Bridge on March the 7th, they can see themselves through to the quarterfinals. Tottenham Hotspur will also have to produce a comeback in the Champions League if they're to reach the last date after Brahim Diaz gave AC Milan a narrow win in their first leg at the San Siro. Um, Antonio Conte Spurs looked relatively comfortable actually for long periods against the seven-time European champions, especially given it was quite a youthful pairing of Pape Sarr and Oliver Skip in midfield, uh, deputising for Pierre-Emil Hoiberg and the injured Rodrigo Bentenker. Um, so in, in the end, it was a positive defeat for Spurs in many ways, um, at least um, I think there are many taking positives from it. It could have been worse. One of those, I think. What did you make of it, Ian? Because a lot was said about maybe Spurs not being at their absolute best and lacking quality. And AC Milan have had a very difficult start to the year as well. Just five points from a possible 18 in Serie A, dropping to fifth in the table. In, in some ways, was this not an elite matchup in the Champions League last 16? Um, yes, you'd 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 probably say that uh, at a whisper, but uh, yeah, I did two two flawed teams, a, a little low on confidence, and I think I think that showed, didn't it? That it, Milan have had a, a a real you know fall from from grace this year, and you know some 
some crossed words in the dressing room and so on. Uh, and I think I think you know that they were they were thrilled uh, to get a win. Whether they genuinely feel it might be enough over two legs is another thing. It, it, I, one of the one of the peculiarities of dropping the away goals rule is that you know people take there's a, there's a slightly different perspective, isn't there, at, at the halfway stage of of these games. You know, you see Chelsea and Tottenham. I think both both quietly uh, confident that that being one nil down um, with, with a home leg and a home crowd to come will, you know, is a reasonably comfortable position. And and I think they're probably right. I think Milan are very flawed. I think they're showing some of the symptoms of um, of youth. It was it was a strength last season in in a fairly patchy Serie A. They had they had verve and they had a bit of sort of bumptiousness about them. Um, but uh, they make they make too many mistakes overall. Uh, while we'd been speaking, actually, uh, the Spurs head coach, Antonio Conte, we're told, will remain in Italy at his family home uh, after a post-operation check following that recent gallbladder surgery. So assistant Christian Stellini will assume charge once again in his absence, a Spurs statement saying, uh, following that routine check, he will stay at home, Antonio Conte, to recover from his recent surgery. Health is the most important consideration. Everyone at the club wishes him well so that's a bit of a blow for Tottenham Hotspur and once again I think um, adds to the weight of feeling that maybe Antonio Conte will be looking for something else than Spurs at the end of this season he's had so many I guess hurdles to deal with off the pitch in particular but also on it in terms of how his team has played and the the recruitment at the club too and news this week or at least reports that uh, there are interested parties when it comes to Tottenham Hotspur as well. So we don't know necessarily what the future of the club will be, although the club themselves deny any approaches and say that the club is, is not for sale. Um, but you feel like you're hitting some kind of junction when it comes to what is next for Tottenham Hotspur. Um, that will be a, a big blow to them, Ian. Uh, yes, it would, in, you know, in terms of, of, of continuity and, um, you know, building a project, so to speak, you know, their, their turnover of managers has been quite high in the last what, five years you talk about junctions um antonio conti is a is a manager of many junctions uh he's uh you know he's got a, a sort of inbuilt restlessness about him at the same time um i think we should take up face value his remarks this week that you know italy is home and it's and he, and he feels a a sense of belonging in Italy, you know, given what's happened to him personally, with 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 friends passing away and 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 um, you know a medical issue. The choices for Antonio Conte are all slightly complicated. Um, you know, if he's genuinely concerned about the future ownership and direction of Tottenham, then he would be equally concerned were he to look at Juventus at the moment with several legal issues hanging over them, uh, carrying possible penalties. And, and of course, they are now in a very difficult position if they want to qualify for the ex-Champions League because they've had a points deduction. Inter will always have a soft spot for Conte, but they're not in the best of, of health and don't have the sort of economic muscle of, of a leading Premier League club. So so, uh, so the, the idea that, that you know, he, he will go back, to, go to Italy and find an improved professional situation at a club there is uh, is certainly very questionable. 
And just going back to AC Milan, how important do you think this victory was for them? Oh, in terms of morale, yeah, important. I mean, they, they, you know, they are in a struggle to qualify for the next uh, Champions League. And, and given that they won uh, their first title for more than a decade last year, they, you know, they, they want to, they want to feel progress. And of course, you know, they want to, they want to honour their status, uh, however historic it now seems. But as I say, I, I think I'd, I'd be surprised to see them come away from 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 Tottenham uh, with a win, and and I, I would I think I think Tottenham should have enough to to get through that tie. Okay, then let's move uh, to the big tie this week. Anyway, we've got Liverpool against Real Madrid to come next week. But ten man Bayern Munich holding on for victory over Paris Saint Germain in France. They take a Lead back to Germany in three weeks' time. PSG's midfielder Warren Zaire Emery became the youngest player ever to start a Champions League knockout stage game. 16 years, 343 days, which is unbelievable. Uh, We also saw Kylian Mbappe come into this game, but clearly isn't 100% fit. And there were issues at Paris Saint-Germain, or I guess a club of their size and the way that they've been over the years. You would call it a blip, maybe, Ian. They've had losses to Marseille in the Coupe de France, Monaco in Liga, another defeat here. Does that pile pressure on the manager, Christophe Gaultier? Undoubtedly, yes, undoubtedly. And, you know, this is a a, a trigger-happy club when it comes to coaches. He, in a sense, he doesn't have, have, have the cachet that some of his predecessors had behind him. Um, he's very good and he's been, you know, he's he's achieved significant things within France but it is just within France um so uh yeah I mean he's he's under huge pressure you know defeated in three different competitions in the space of what a week um that's that's you know that's not that's not what the dominant club in France are supposed to do and I, I mean I, they would I thought they were wretched actually against Bayern Bayern, Bayern were good and, and not brilliant and you know, where do you start it, it's extraordinary isn't it that a team with Lionel Messi, who fresh from winning the World Cup, looks around and thinks, "Oh, we we only have one possible match winner, and it's not Messi. It's 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 a guy carrying an injury um, off the bench." You know, given given the resources they should have, and and as as I think you implied, probably their best player overall on the night was a sixteen-year-old. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, they, they they can be mind-boggling PSG. Um, and it, yes, they they will they will do everything they can to have Mbappe fit in Munich, which um, yeah it does you know does pose a danger, and and he could with the right service and and peak fitness turn the turn the tie around. But, but um, yeah, I, I, I think it doesn't take much for PSG to start navel gazing and certainly start start uh, blaming the head coach the, the one thing Galtier has is I think the, you know the confidence of the of of the dressing room which is important because they speak loudly and he he sort of he came in as part of a package with the effective sports director Lewis Campos so he might not be quite so disposable for for that reason but but yeah it's a, it's a big test for him and I think people are curious to see to see how how he responds. He's got to be given time. I mean, surely they can't keep chopping and changing managers. It hasn't worked. So I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping 
that Christophe Gaultier does get some time. Um, but whether it means that Paris Saint-Germain will get that elusive Champions League, I'm not sure. Very, very tricky now for them going uh, to Bayern Munich, who haven't been beaten since September the 17th. I'm not necessarily sure Bayern Munich are as good as Bayern Munich's of old, but um, I'm not necessarily sure this Paris Saint-Germain team is, is much better than the Paris Saint-Germain teams we've also seen uh, in the last few years. I, I'm not sure about this this messy axis, as great a player as he is, uh, with Neymar and Mbappe. Um, you know, it's a dream team on paper, but it just hasn't clicked and it feels like we'll come to the end of the road with that experiment very soon as well. One thing that does do is is leave us with no clear favourite. It's hard to it's very hard to pick a favourite in this. You look at Real Madrid with their just their sheer their, their record in the Champions League. You can never rule them out, but they're not they're not enjoying a, a brilliant season in, in La Liga. As you see, there's so many flaws in the other in the other sort of main protagonists, included Liverpool included, Manchester City included, although we we are Wondering now whether they're about to hit their stride. So it it's certainly hard to call this year, very hard. Yeah, I, I don't think I think it's. Um, I mean, at this stage, it's easy to say um, halfway through the last sixteen. But, but yeah, it it does look potentially a bit more open. And and uh, you know, there's the the, the most brilliant team in Europe, um, certainly uh, statistically, is is Napoli, and they that they can almost. They can almost not bother with Syria now, so that means they can concentrate resources on the Champions League. They've got a very winnable tie against Eintracht Frankfurt, and you know that, that you know that would be fun. That would be a refreshing presence in the later stages. Benfica, despite losing Enzo Fernandez, are in very good form domestically and uh, very comfortably saw off Scott Parker's Bruges um, uh, on on Wednesday night. Um, a two 0 up in their legs. So yeah, I, I agree with Gregor. It, it's um, yeah, it, it it does look, it does look open, and and with the real possibility that you know, come the last four at least we might have we might have a relatively unfamiliar name. Well, plenty to come, of course, in the last sixteen of the Champions League. More games next week as well. As I mentioned, that huge game between Liverpool and Real Madrid. I wonder what we'll get there. So plenty, of course, for us to discuss in this competition. But up next, we will head back to the Premier League with a couple of massive games at the bottom of the table. Okay, just about time on the game podcast to discuss this weekend's Premier League games. And I wanted to focus in, of course, on the two teams towards the bottom of the table, searching, possibly still searching for a new manager. Who knows what decision these two clubs will make? Looks like Jesse Marsh will not be taking over at Southampton, as we thought the last time we spoke. They go to Chelsea this weekend with assistant manager Ruben Sellers leading the team. He's currently favourite to get the job longer term. Now, if it is to be Sellers, relative unknown, what does that say about the club's ownership group, Sport Republic, and the decision that they made bringing in Nathan Jones, but then sacking Nathan Jones? Of course, that wasn't going well for anyone, and we understand why he lost his job, but the succession planning clearly wasn't there the sacking has been made um, and we'll come to Leeds United who are in a very similar position in a moment um, what is happening with Southampton's dugout Gregor well, you talk about succession planning and you know, I suppose they're not really expecting to have to plan for a succession in quite so uh, short a space of time look 
Jesse Marsh going there would have been, I think it would have been, there, there were aspects of it that you could think that might fit in terms of another manager who, you know, on the back of Ralph, Ralph Hassan, who certainly um, is all about high intensity, full throttle football, but clearly they weren't willing to commit to him long term. And, and you have to say from Jesse Marsh's point of view that uh, the last thing he needs is a, is a kind of second dismissal in a short space of time uh, in the Premier League. So, as I say, I, I think it's a bit, it's clearly they weren't expecting to have to do this. And whereas we'll come on to speak about Leeds and how I think their they're thinking is certainly a little bit more muddled. Southampton are looking around to try and find someone to help them survive just now. And they weren't expecting that they had to do that. So there are certainly many mistakes that Sport Republic have made in the year and a bit since they, they took over the club. But I would be slightly hesitant to to say that having a plan in place for to replace Nathan Jones after a few months in charge isn't one of them. I think that probably the appointment of Nathan Jones in the first place, or I think almost it was a you know it was a we've said it before it was a a decision that's that's taken to kind of appease the fans because the the atmosphere had turned so toxic and they've got to take their fair share of responsibility for that and the thing that they need more than anything is that atmosphere and that cloud to be lifted and it needs to be the right man to do that or probably our best place with sell is who's someone who's there at the club and he's been there for a little while and I think the fans will probably get behind and the players know. I, I think Southampton are, are are very muddled and and I think that this Sport Republic has been has shown its inexperience actually in this whole period at Southampton because even though Nathan Jones is a it is a massive mistake, was a massive mistake, but at the same time, it's not one that everyone entirely saw coming because there were Premier League there were other Premier League clubs who were looking at Nathan Jones as a potential successor should their manager go or be recruited uh, by a bigger club. So he was he was hot property um, because of what he'd done at Luton. So I, d- I don't think there was that the appointment a, a club like Southampton appointing Nathan Jones is, is a huge mistake. What I do think was that it was just the, the wrong time to do it. You look at the context and the surroundings and hiring a guy who'd never managed in the Premier League to get you to survival was um, really incomprehensible. And I actually think looking at Jesse Marsh now adds to that as well. It's the same. Quite a few Premier League clubs have had some pretty muddled thinking. And I, I sometimes I wonder whether it is a conversation we were discussing earlier about fan reaction. What what fans expect and easing them because when you look at what Everton did when uh, they got rid of Frank Lampard, the people they were looking at, Sean Dyche, Marcelo Bielsa, saw Rui Faria was um, interviewed, Duncan Garson's wrote in the Times, um, David A. Angelotti. I mean, you such a broad, vast... Age of experience, styles, and coaching, 
and it's similar now. And and I know we're going to go on to talk a bit more about Leeds, but just on on Leeds as well, the fact that they got rid of Jesse Marsh without a succession plan in place. I know I know we talk quite a lot about the dark side of football where you've got owners and executives and directors speaking to a candidate while a man is uh, another man is still in the job and it seems a bit dark and sinister but there's a reason for it and that's because otherwise you end up in this position where you're betwixt and between um, and results are sliding fast yeah that's the key that's the key key difference Southampton they didn't expect they were going to be in this position and their 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 mistakes have been they've been too bold they've been too confident in their own processes and thinking whether that's in recruitment of players or or the manager they've done too much too soon i think whereas Leeds you know they 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 had time to to make to make plans to to think about a successor uh because it's never been great under Jesse Marsh there was flickers of of signs of a of a of a team coming together and then regression so they should have been more you know there should be more more forward thinking in their in their part and i i personally think that this is another sign of leeds as a football club that aren't particularly well run they're quite impulsive and i think their their success rate with managers as i said the other week bielsa was such a shot in the dark that if you take him out of the equation and it was a kind of miraculous you know, hugely enjoyable journey for everyone. If you take him out of the equation, I think Andrea Rajazani and Victor Orta have been decidedly average in their running of Leeds United. Um, yeah, I think there's another factor too, which which, which um, draws into what you've said. I think there's an assumption at some Premier League clubs that because the Premier League is so lofty now and that the financial muscle is so great and it's 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 you know the land of milk and honey hedge fund managers um, that um, a promising young coach from Europe will you click your fingers and and they will come running at any stage of the season to be part of the the Premier League adventure. Now Leeds have discovered quite awkwardly that that's not the case with with two of the people they've approached in uh, to succeed Jesse March. And you, you talk to intermediaries, and I think there is this perception that that you know any promising up and coming coach who's who's succeeded elsewhere will immediately drop everything to to come and join the Premier League, and um, and it's not the case. You know, the, the, some of these young managers are good and up and coming because they plan carefully, and they they also have confidence that better offers will come in the summer, which is you know, which is when you want to start a new job. It's a huge game for Leeds United this weekend, um, and it's an intriguing one as well. They go to Everton, massive for Sean Dyche, of course, but uh, you know Leeds United need to start picking up wins, and they just don't have a permanent manager. And uh, seeing them linked with the likes of Nuno Espirito Santo and Steven Gerrard now, I mean, again, it's just an indication of, you know, I guess the fact that the board really should be under fire. And I think you point really interestingly to the decisions of of the past and maybe how fortunate they were with Bielsa Gregor. But but looking at this game, you know, and the way that Leeds started against Manchester United and the positivity there ultimately ended up in a, a defeat. They got a draw in the game before that, which is the first game after Marsh is sacking also against Manchester United. You look at Everton who lost the Merseyside derby 2-0 on, on Monday night and you think this game could be crucial to both of them staying in the Premier League. Three points for both. 
is is essential really but also when you think about the fact that Leeds will face Southampton after that um, they need to inject some positivity and some form this weekend how do you see this game going final word on it Gregor I'll, I'll start with you it, it has the makings of a humdinger there's no shortage of commitment on both sides and this, that's one thing you would say about these two teams Everton under Deitch yes they lost to Liverpool but there was no shortage of commitment and desire and all the things, the fundamentals that Sean Deitch uh, demands. And you have to say, Leeds in their games since Jesse Marsh left, and even under Marsh, that's one thing you knew you were guaranteed. They had desire, uh, energy, running. They were getting in your face. That was their that's their 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 identity. So, um, and there's a lot at stake in this game. So, absolutely, I think it could be uh, a bit of a throwback almost. Um, and I, I would probably favour Everton just because I think they were playing against Liverpool and it, Liverpool were much improved um, on Monday night but they still I think their kind of defensive resolve and their sort of their, their base now under Sean Dyche is going to be crucial we've always said the question is going to be whether they can score enough goals and they, you know, they were missing Dominic Calvert-Lewin in that game that's a huge blow but that, that kind of that start point that 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 defensive resolve is gonna is probably gonna be the difference for Everton, I think. And and uh United while they have, you know, Crescencio Somerville and Nonto are, are showing in flashes of how exciting they can be. It's not always been consistent output from them. And they they kind of are lacking a uh an out and out goal scorer as well. So as if you're asking me for a prediction, I would just edge Everton. But I think it could be a bit of a throwback like Lots like blood and thunder, and I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> you expecting blood and thunder, Tom? I think Sean Dyche uh, will be anticipating blood and thunder, and I think he is smart enough to have worked out ways to attempt to kill it, really, because I think Leeds will go into it expecting that, almost thriving off the idea of playing in this chaos in which they tend to do so well and these um, hostile atmospheres. And yet, I think you will see a few of the Daesh Dark Arts in slowing down the game, killing it, frustrating, uh, being frustrating to Leeds. And I agree with Gregor in that I think it will be it'll be effective. Um, I think... I think Everton win this. It's going to be an intriguing one. Ian, what do you think? What do you think about these two, two, well, three teams really, Southampton, Everton and Leeds and their chances of survival now? Well, I I, I find myself thinking all the time, um, well, recently and certainly since Everton have replaced, um, I've got a new manager in, um, that uh, neither Leeds or Everton will go down. But then, of course, you look at the table and you have to find somebody else. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, uh, you know, I think that they've both shown um, quite enough to be to be positive about their prospects. But um, you know, uh, somebody's got to go down, and I, I'm slightly with Gregor that I think at the moment, and for this fixture, you'd marginally favour Everton, which you know might be decisive in the race. My doorbell's just gone. 
<laughs> Saved by the bell. Ian Hawkey, thank you very much. We've come to the end of our time together. Tom Roddy out in Dortmund, thank you for taking the time to join us. Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark as well. And thank you all uh, for listening. Remember, you can get more of our great journalism right now on the Times app in a Times newspaper. So download or buy wherever you can. You can also, of course, subscribe to the game online, thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game each and every Monday for you. Certainly make sure you pick up a paper if you haven't got a subscription. And if you don't want to miss an episode of the podcast, then just hit that notifications button and you will be notified every single time we release a new episode. The next one will be coming on Monday. We'll see you then. Take care.